You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. My name is Sanara, and I'm excited to be hosting the show this morning. Today on Wednesday Brekkie, we'll be taking an alternate look at activism and the social change movement by questioning the role of corporations in contributing to social good and how different forms of corporate structure may be more beneficial to societies. First up, we'll be hearing from Professor Carl Verdes, who is Dean of University of Technology Sydney's Business School and the author of Work Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Professor Rhodes argues that work capitalism is a threat to democracy with devastating consequences. However, he is hopeful that the emerging generation of politically-minded youth will be the torchbearers of a new community of common good and public sovereignty. This will be a special feature on this morning's show and will take us through till around 8 o'clock. We'll then hear from Ana Aguera, co-founder and worker of a cooperative organization in Spain's northern Basque country. Anna shares her experience of worker-owned corporations and invites Australians to learn more about the benefits of an approach which centers workers in decision-making in order to produce socially beneficial outcomes. Before that, we're going to go to a song now. This is Heavy by Charm of Finches. Outside, if we look closely, we'd find small things could move us. No, we look for great heights and for shimmering brilliance to reflect in our eyes. To sit on a throne, even if it's all alone, and cut our skin and find our blood is blue. Look inside and find our minds are too. We find our minds are blue And ten years on Will we wonder what we ever thought we were doing With some vague plan And a fear of changing ways that we were living Are we all hold something so Will we 
Listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Sinera on January 11th, and that was Heavy by Charm of Finches. We're now going to head on to our first segment on woke capitalism. We bang on about the corrosive impacts of capitalism, but what about corporations attempting to go woke? Critics claim that corporations have no place playing politics. Others argue that big businesses should contribute to the social good. Professor Carl Rhodes is the Dean of University of Technology Sydney's Business School and the author of Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. He argues that woke capitalism is a threat to democracy with devastating consequences. This morning we'll hear Professor Rhodes in conversation with the Honourable Professor Verity Firth who is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Rhodes spoke at an event hosted by UTS Sydney Business School and the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion last year, and we are really excited to share it with you right now. And it's a fascinating discussion, so let's hop straight into work democracy. Here's Honourable Professor Verity Firth in conversation with Professor Carl Rhodes. So firstly, I'd like to thank you all for joining us for today's event. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that for those of us in Australia, we're all on the traditional lands of First Nations peoples. This land was never ceded. I want to acknowledge particularly the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation upon whose ancestral lands I um, am meeting, but also, of course, the uh, ancestral lands of the Gadigal people um, are, of course, the land upon which our university is built. I want to pay respect to elders past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for the land. 
My name is Verity Firth. I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Social Justice and Inclusion here at UTS. It's my real pleasure to be joined today by the brilliant Professor Carl Rhodes, who's the Dean of our UTS Business School. I'll be introducing him properly in just a moment. Carl is the Dean of the UTS Business School and is responsible for leading its vision to be a socially committed business school. He's held professorships at various universities in the UK and Australia, and prior to his academic career, he worked in professional and senior management positions in change management and organisational development. His combination of senior experience in academia and the private sector provides him with a unique perspective on the role of universities in contributing to and questioning how business and economic activity can and should contribute to society. Carl is the author of Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. The ideas explored in his book have piqued the interest of many, with Carl featuring on ABC's The Drum, The Festival of Dangerous Ideas, and he's cited in many local and international publications. In fact, he just told me he's appearing on German radio tonight. So the book has recently come out in paperback. We're going to post a link in the chat so you can purchase it. I read it this weekend and loved it. I devoured it. It's a really, really good read, a really, really easy read. And also, I should say, a really important read. So I'm now going to um, ask Carl the first question. So, Carl, oh, welcome first. Welcome. Look, thanks, Verity, and for that very generous introduction. So the term woke and the concept of wokeness refers to someone who is well-informed or alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice. In your book at the beginning, and actually it's one of the chapters that I really enjoyed, um, you go through a process of describing how the term emerges, in fact, from the lexicon of Black America. It's a term that has been for many decades, actually, at the heart of African-American social and political awareness around race, and class and injustice. So I thought to begin with, let's talk about what woke actually means before we then discuss about what's happened to it since its adoption by the capitalists. So Carl, what does woke actually mean? Thanks, Verity. I don't know if you remember, I might start in an interesting place. Do you remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? Or you might've read the bit that I wrote about in there. And Rip Van Winkle um, uh, is actually the, the subject uh, of a speech by Martin Luther King in 1965. The speech was called Remaining Awake Through the Great Revolution. Um, and it was just it was two years after the I Had a Dream speech. Anyway, in this speech, um, King talks about the story of Rip Van Winkle. So just to remind you of this, uh, Rip Van Winkle was, uh, was uh, in the story actually fell asleep he was actually went to a to a to a tavern um and when he was there he saw on the wall a um a picture of king george iii of, of england who was at that time the, the the king of the colony of the united states and then uh, rip van winkle then kind of goes up the hill i think it is and falls asleep um uh, for a great deal of time anyway then he eventually wakes up and he comes down and he goes to the same tavern and he sees on the wall a picture of George Washington, who is the first US president. So 
Rip Van Winkle in the story slept through the American Revolution, slept through the birth of American democracy. And, and so the story goes, he's confused, he doesn't know what's going on um, because he was asleep. Now, in, uh, Martin Luther King, in his speech, kind of uses this as an idea um, uh, to talk about how can someone not be aware of the massively significant social and political changes going on um, around them. And in his case, of course, he was saying, while Rick Van Winkle was asleep to the American Revolution, to what extent are people uh, in the United States asleep to, to what was going on with the civil rights movement um, and, and the, the, the revolution around, around that? So you see in that Martin Luther King there very much drawing on this notion of being uh, awake or being awoken to what's happening to you, meaning being aware of of, um, of, of the politics and the issues affecting you. And this was a, a term um, that he drew on, but was kind of in use in, in uh, African-American culture at the time. You know, there was a play um, by Barry Beckham in 1971 called Garvey Lives, which again was how, you know, Marcus Garvey um, uh, woke people up to... Uh, to, to what was going on. But even in popular culture, there's a song from 1975 by Teddy Pendergrass called Wake Up Everybody. Um, although at this point, it's still very minor. The, the term was very much kind of located in uh, Black American vernacular. And it kind of got a bit more widespread use when there was a hit song in 2008, music lovers might remember, 2000, uh, so 2008 song by Erica Badu called Master Teacher, where she sings about kind of the daily pressures that people are, are under in, in their life. And there's a refrain that repeats, I stay woke, I stay woke, I stay woke. So this was, this was kind of there. It kind of got much more widespread at the time of where Black Lives Matter kicked off in uh, 2013 you know, following the, the tragic uh, unnecessary death of a 17-year-old boy called Trayvon Martin um, at the hands of a, a neighborhood watch, um, kind of quasi-vigilante, I guess. Um, and as the Black Lives Matter took off, and this was the, the you know, the, the beginning of social movements through social media, and, and picking up on this usage, Black Lives Matter used the hashtag stay woke. And so as a way of be aware of Black Lives Matter, being be aware of what's happening with racial discrimination and, 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 uh, and violence uh, against, uh, against Black people in the United States. But the Black Lives Matter protests were so successful and so successful through social media, that's when the term woke started you know, entering into the broader mainstream. So that's a kind of you know, snapshot of the story about how woke is really about a very powerful political meaning about being aware of what's going around you uh, politically and not being easily duped into believing um, fake truths, to use that term. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So the term woke is excellent, right? Like it's a great term. Yeah. So what is woke capitalism? So what happened after this woke became more well known through Black Lives Matter? As, as is often the case, um, the, the, the word was appropriated by mainstream culture and particularly by white culture. And so it started being used in its original term, but it soon got transformed to being used as a form of criticism and particularly a criticism 
but not for African Americans, but mainly for for white Americans who were perceived to be have some kind of superficial or or inauthentic um, kind of right on politically correct views, and and so woke. Really, the whole meaning of it um, transformed um, from being something really positive and politically powerful to just about a way of criticizing people who bragged about what their self-righteous uh, positions are on political issues. Um, and it was actually not long after that that it became a derogatory term in relation to in, uh, corporations who gain, engaged in social activism. It was actually initially at the time Donald Trump was president, uh, a journalist from the New York Times called Ross Dutat coined the term work capitalism and a conservative uh, author, uh, uh, journalist. But what he was saying is that this was when Trump was, you know, significantly reducing corporations tax in the US. And he was saying, well, big corporations quite happy about this reduction in corporate tax. But at the same time, not wanting to align themselves with the kind of regressive, bigoted, you know, terrible, um, socially oriented side of, of politics um, about building the wall and, and you know, the, um, uh, these kind of, you know, um, racist kind of views. So the idea he suggested that companies were, were taking on social views in a way of distancing themselves from that while still taking advantage of it. But after that, the term really just became used as a way of criticizing corporations who engaged in in um, uh, in um, uh, socio-political causes, Black Lives Matter, you know, um, uh, the Me Too movement, LGBTQI plus rights and marriage equality, these kind of things that corporations, but usually most commonly used by kind of arm-waving, shouty right-wing types, not, not like Piers Morgan is a good example, um, uh, who really just were using this as a way of blanket uh, criticism, saying that corporations shouldn't be doing this, you know, aligning themselves with stupid left-wing positions. Their view, not mine. Yeah, yeah. No, so, interest, yeah, so that's interesting. So you've mentioned them already. In your book, you actually outline really these examples of these big corporations doing these allegedly woke agendas and the example you use a number of examples you talk about nike's dream crazy ad that um featured colin copernic supporting black lives matter you've got gillette taking a stance on toxic masculinity with their a best a man can be campaign as a result of the me too movement and you describe in your book what you basically just said which is the corporations receive backlashes of different types, right? So they they receive a backlash from the political right, which basically says, um, you know, oh, you're just lackeys of the liberal left, you've been taken over, this is outrageous, you should be concentrating only on shareholder profit. So that's what the right say. But then they also receive a sort of backlash from I don't even know how to determine maybe the political left, where they say, um, actually, are you performing, you know, are you actually meeting up to the standards that you are saying that you're doing? So you talk about Elizabeth Warren's critique, not mm. so much about the concept of being involved in politics, but just that they're not doing it well enough, right? Now, I now want to talk to you about that because your book really talks about a third critique, right, a different yeah. type of critique. And can you take us through that? What is it that you say about the problem of work, of work capitalism? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at these the, the dominant perspectives, both from the kind of conservative and, and liberal side of politics, um, in some cases, people agreeing. Uh, you'd also get positions for more liberal positions who say, well, you know, these organizations are supporting the kind of causes that I also support. That's going to be a good thing because they agree with me. Um, or criticisms from, from a conservative, as you say, you know, um, this is a change. In both cases, there's a kind of belief that there's some fundamental change in capitalism going on. Um, and the difference might be whether you happen to agree with it or not, but there's a fundamental change. So when, when the, the uh, business round table in the US says they're going to redefine the purpose of the corporation around um, uh, stakeholder capitalism, the implication is that we've got this, this massive change. My view is that this is not a change at all. This is entirely a continuation of, uh, of what has been going on. And even if you trace it, you know, you can trace woke capitalism through the history of corporate social responsibility. And going woke then is in part about ensuring that market capitalism can continue on the same trajectory that's been on for the last 40 years of kind of post-Thatcher, post-Reagan um, uh, neoliberalism. Um, and so it's not necessarily uh, a good thing. It's not just a simply matter of saying that woke corporations are hypocrites or they're riding popular causes. Uh, causes. Um, uh, it's what actually is happening to the economy. And part of the, the, the interest here is what does it mean for corporate power? Because as corporations con continue to get involved in these kind of political issues, they're more and more encroaching on engaging in issues in the public sphere. Now, the basis of democracy is based on a division between private interests and common public interests. The whole notion of the common good is, is central to democracy. But with this, we get a kind of mixing of the two. So even Gillette, the example that you used, they supported uh, you know, the Me Too movement and a criticism of toxic masculinity a view that I also personally would uphold uh, politically. But again, the question of when, and there's good news in the sense that they did that because it was so popular. So they were backing a cause that had, had already, you know, been, been fought in some ways. And their ad was very controversial, but they were specifically looking at targeting um, uh, a market of millennials who are kind of turning away for, from their products and so forth. So what they did made a whole lot of commercial sense. But what we've also got to remember with any of these things, the corporations aren't leading change at all. At best, they're following and amplifying it. Look at, you know, issues of, of uh, LGBTQI plus rights, which many organizations support now. You know, they've come in after public opinions, not entirely been settled, but largely they weren't the, the real activists who are marching on the street, risking their lives, putting their whole lives on the line, trying to create social change for causes that matter to them. Corporations come in at the end of the day to take a bit of the glory and to help that kind of match up to their commercial interests because they are driven by commercial interests as they're legally bound to do. You can't criticize them for that. Um, but to suggest that they're leading social change through this, you know, the real activists have done that way ahead of time. And that's right. And I was, I might actually throw to a and a hey, this is all like, I can actually move, move the questions in from the public into the conversation. It's perfect because Josh Bornstein has just asked a question and it relates exactly to what you're just saying. He says, 
Business now argues that they don't have any choice but to embrace social activism, including to appease consumers and employees. There are examples of employees petitioning their employer to embrace woke capitalism on social issues, even while their employer ducks corporate tax and suppresses wages. Could you comment on that, please? I could. <laughs> uh, look, this points to a very interesting issue, and corporations do tend to engage in these things under pressure. I mean, so this is a this is a bizarre kind of way that that um, uh, democracy strangely operates through this. But corporations still have some choice because I think you've got to think also of woke capitalism generally supports a range of political issues that focus that are more socially oriented as we've talked about you know uh anti-racism um uh you know the me too movement and issues of gender relations um sexual identity and, and so forth all not suggesting they're not important political issues but there's a many things that corporations and woke capitalists don't go for so I haven't seen any um, uh, of these companies make any issues about the scandalous, obscene extremities of CEO and executive remuneration and its contribution to a, a growing um, or indeed worsening uh, issues of uh, economic injustice and inequality. Not many focus, there are some, but not many focus on increasing the minimum wage. Mm. Like you said, how many are, are thinking that, uh, you know, aggressive corporate tax minimization is a woke issue? Mm. When it is, if you ask me, because it's um, it's central to, to the ability for democratic governments to be able to, to pursue the common interests of the people. So that's not included. So on the one hand, it's responding to employees, but it's also, it's a distraction from from some of the more fundamental problems, and particularly around uh, economic inequality, that have been produced by capitalism over over many years and become worse, worse and worse more more recently. Um, so I, I think the idea that corporations have no choice, I don't think that's entirely true. It's true that they're under pressure from employees, um, uh, but there are there are there are some lines they won't cross, and those are the lines that affects their economic self-interest. I think that's, you write beautifully on that throughout the book. And in fact, I was just, as you were talking, I was just remembering the quote that you quote Helen Lewis um, in the book where she points out exactly that point, where she says, equal pay is economically radical. Hiring a female or minority CEO for the first time is socially radical. Mm. Uh, you know, diversity training is socially radical at best. Providing social housing tenants with homes not covered by flammable cladding is economically radical. And it's a really great um, yeah. pulling together of what you've just described. Yeah. And the idea is that under the corporations aren't going to be economically radical. And to some extent, they shouldn't be. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, because that's kind of their function in society um, uh, to do that. Um, uh, and you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be. I mean, another mm -hmm. point that, I, that I've made is that it's not just about blaming corporations or pointing out that the you know you know evil business people who look like the the you know the monopoly man are going around you know stealing all the swag. That's not the, not the point at all. I think if if anything, a lot of the issues with with what we're seeing now is a failure of government as opposed to being some kind of evil doing by corporations. Governments have 
in, in liberal democratic countries, you know, for decades now have have uh, empowered corporations, have withdrawn from many aspects of, um, of uh, economic life of citizens, um, uh, have failed to act on climate change, um, uh, have failed to deal with inequality, have failed in so many, many ways. And corporations are kind of filling that vacuum. Um, so it's a, it's a problem created politically mm. as much as it's created by aggressive corporations. So we, we don't want to kind of just play into some, you know, little bit too easy stereotypes of yeah. corporations. It's, I don't think it's like that. And okay, then, well, to, to be devil's advocate then in the argument, if that is the case, and I think you definitely in your book make a strong case, you talk through the Thatcherism as very well and Reaganomics and the whole neoliberal agenda and what essentially happened to public life via that neoliberal agenda and the sort of the mm. privatising of public life in many ways. So given that, say, given that's the case, then when the world is facing a cataclysmic uh, existential crisis like climate change, does it really matter what motivates the businesses to do well? And isn't it a good thing, whether or not they're doing it to line their own pockets, if they're actually reducing their carbon emissions, if they're actually um, powerful people sitting around a table at Davos making the right decisions doesn't matter. Well, there is a question. I mean, I think, I mean, it, it matters looking a little bit beneath that and the question of whether the right decisions are being made. Um, climate change is, is an interesting example. I mean, CEOs might adopt various climate-friendly uh, policies, you know, notwithstanding the potential for greenwashing, still mm -hmm. alive and well, that's certainly not a thing of, of the past. But corporations essentially have a very strong incentive of for maximizing shareholder value, despite the rhetoric. And they, that's of interest in the short and long term. For CEOs, that's also about that incentive includes their personal wealth with their remuneration being tied up in, in share price. Um, but also the ability of their corporations to, to, to grow and develop and to be able to attract finance, attract capital, mm. and so forth. So you've got to ask the question, will business leaders sacrifice their personal wealth and the ability of their organizations to raise capital for social and public good? And, you know, we've got to understand there are deep contradictions in place here between private interests and public interests that kind of get washed over in this, this assumption that, that, of what businesses can and can't do. Mm -hmm. The private, that just doesn't, doesn't go away. And so I think it's naive to assume in the climate case, the, you know, net zero targets, Paris Agreement and so forth, are going to be achieved through, um, uh, through voluntary action. Now, um, uh, there was a, um, a report just produced actually here at UTS by our, um, our uh, colleagues at uh, ISF, just mm. I think it was last week or so, and it looked at the, the kind of production plans of, of auto manufacturers and the idea that if we continue creating automobile uh, fuel, you know, uh, combustion engine based automobiles at the rate that's planned, there's no way the Paris Agreement reductions are going to be made. Mm -hmm. And they they uh, they released that. It went into the press um, last year, um, uh, and um, not last year, sorry, last last week. Last week. And uh, the newspaper, I think it was the Herald, 
uh, interviewed someone from Toyota. And uh, the person from Toyota basically said, you know, they remain committed to providing customers with a diverse range of vehicles so the customers can choose what kind of technology they want, whether they want an electric vehicle or whether they want, I don't know, a kind of gas guzzler um, or whatever the case may be. Um, and so, again, they're deferring to the customer to make that decision. So this is an example. There's a commitment to climate change visibly in the auto industry. But this report suggests that that's completely inadequate to deal with the issue. So it's not to say that business doesn't have to be involved. Well, obviously, business is either creating the 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 uh, the machines or cars and other machines that emit. And also the whole problem of climate is a result of industrialized capitalism. You know, that's when the, when we started burning stuff uh, at the scale we are now. So sure, it's good if corporations do things, but it's, it's by far not enough without serious public uh, commitment. Yeah, I think probably one of the bits that I um, found most persuasive as well in your book, there's a chapter where you talk about Jeff Bezos and his giant so he made a 10 billion dollar philanthropic donation for climate change to a climate change fund but yep. in your book you also go through just how much tax avoidance amazon undertakes and if he was actually just paying if amazon was actually just paying a fair share of tax the increased government capacity right so hmm. More and more it became obvious in your book that part of the problem also is how can the government be that regulator par excellence or um, leader in all of this when they're so chronically underfunded, mostly because all of these corporations are not actually um, delivering their appropriate tax entitlements? I mean, yeah. what do you say about that? Well, I mean, firstly, it's not just about tax. Many of these corporations also get other forms of incentive um, uh, as well. Um, uh, you know, Tesla being an example of a company that's received many, many incentives. And so, yeah, again, it's interesting. I mean, in the case of the Earth, when you've got a company like, like Amazon, which essentially the whole business is built around transportation, so that when you order a book, not mine, uh, from Amazon and they deliver it to you, they're not, you know, they're not, they didn't make the book. They're just there. So it makes sense that they would want to have some control over the whole agenda of the fossil fuel industry as well. So it's, it's very basic to, uh, to what they do. But again, if you look at a company like Amazon, who's come under massive criticisms for the way it treats workers in its uh, in its warehouses in particular and other aspects of what we do. And we kind of got to come back to think, what are core social responsibilities of business? Is it about taking these kind of stands? Because there's a whole other set of things that says, well, the real contribution uh, corporations and businesses can can make is providing citizens with meaningful work offering people decent wages, as you say, paying tax, obeying the law. But these are things that are all in question um, around issues of, you know, whether it be minimum wage, whether it be uh, sweatshop working conditions, whether it be um, uh, uh, modern, modern slavery in the US, whether it be corporations being vicious in their antipathy to the possibility of uh, worker organization and trade unionism. Mm -hmm. There's different ways to look at the, how uh, um, corporations can make the contribution. And, mm -hmm. you know, supporting social causes that the majority of people already agree with is probably not the biggest potential 
contribution that they could make. I think there's much more yeah. important ways that corporations can 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 contribute. And with climate, they definitely need to be a part of it, but not to call the shots. This is a global public problem um, uh, that requires political solutions, not commercial ones. And I think that that was one of the points that I took home, which was you, you open your Chapter 6 with that Larry Fink letter, who's, of course, the um, billionaire who's in charge of the investment management company BlackRock. And yeah. his letter says... Quote, unnerved by fundamental economic changes and the failure of government to provide lasting solutions, society is increasingly looking to companies, both public and private, to address pressing social and economic issues. And there's such hubris in that, right? I think we were talking offline a bit about the hubris of we have the answers because we are the people who have become rich. You know, we have a way of working, a, a special type of genius, and it is yeah. only us who will solve the world's problems. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's part of the problem, right? Um, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, it really is interesting at, at how kind of, I don't know, messianic some of these uh, people can become. Even when Elon Musk was taking over Twitter, now he's not woke by any stretch of the imagination, but it wasn't about spending $44 million on a business so he can become even richer than his current status as the richest person in the world. It was where he was a, what was it? A free speech fundamentalist. He was going to single-handedly save democracy through what he was doing. And there's this, it's a crazy kind of almost, as I say, kind of messiah complex about what can, what can happen. And a, an unfaltering belief that the way that business is organized is the solution to all of the world's problems. It's the same kind of rhetoric you hear from the, the World Economic Forum at the Davos conference. It's all about looking at business solutions um, for everything. And maybe there's a, you know, that's, that's it's a ideologically driven um, a kind of neoliberal perspective that just doesn't hold up um, uh, to scrutiny. I mean, you know, politics, is still important and more importantly democracy is still important and the form of deliberation i mean and democracy you know uh, an ideal that's massively imperfect in its mm. in its mm. um uh, in how it's actually delivered through through processes of government and, and public institutions but an ideal that i just think we cannot let go of um uh, and just just relinquish our role to private interests, because if we're just relying on Larry Fink or Jeff Bezos or whoever, we're returning to a plutocracy. We're returning to a type of feudalism where the people who are in control of society do so merely by virtue of their wealth. Now, the onset of democracy, at least European and American democracy, was a rejection of that model. And it seems by stealth, we're going back to a kind of feudal time. And that worries me deeply, Verity. So to come back to some of our guest questions, which again are beautifully aligned um, to the direction the conversation is taking, a question from Madeline Coon or Combe, um, writing under Deborah Cotton's um, name, <laughs> isn't the responsibility of government to change the rules of the game such that social and environmental prosperity isn't decided by woke CEOs sacrificing personal wealth? 
Similar for philanthropy, individuals with material wealth and power should not be able to cherry pick social environmental challenges to finance. What will incentivise governments to assert more control? Recent polls say that Australians are asking for corporate regulation. Will this happen? Yeah, I mean, firstly, yes, yes and yes. Um, I hope it does happen. And I, I um, and it depends what we mean by government. If we're talking about elected politicians, they will be driven by what wins elections. I mean, obviously, government's much more deeply... And, you know, we need to think of the institutions of democracy, not just about elected uh, elected politicians. But I think it... I, I hope um, uh, that it's correct, that the interests of the people will determine what government will do and government will reassert themselves. Remember that corporations only exist by virtue of laws that are created, that have been created by governments. Mm -hmm. You know, the government is, the, the corporations are at least legally subservient to the law. So there's the opportunity to reassert, to reassert this. What I'm more enamored by than anything else, I mean, I've got to say that my generation, I, I sometimes think of myself as belonging to generation N, meaning generation neoliberalism. You know, I went to yeah. university in 1984, you know, when Thatcher was just, I was in the UK, just kind of get, getting big. And my generation has, at best, I mean, in some cases, reaped some of the benefits from that for, 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 for some people, or at worst, just kind of observed things getting worse. And, and, you know, I think we've got to kind of admit to that failure. But when I see the new generation of people coming through university now, and obviously because of my position, I do, mm. I'm seeing a kind of level of politicization amongst young people that I've never seen before in my life. And if you look historically, I would say that's not been present in Western countries and in Australia too, um, uh, since the 1960s. So I think there is a renewed interest in politics amongst young people. Mm. And that, I mean, and as you'd expect from people entering university at 17 or 18, at times that's a little bit simplistic, naive and utopian, but mm. you know, we were all there once. Um, but I see this this repoliticization as a real source of hope that there might be a different political future and there might be a, a rebirth in the belief of community, of common good, of of um, of uh, public sovereignty and of democracy in a way that's been eroded time you know year and year and year again since I was a young uh, a young adult at least. So in the context of maybe a new way of looking at things, I might um, go to Julie Gelman's question where she asks about what about the notion of a social contract as envisaged in the German word Gesellschaft? Sorry if I mispronounced that, Gesellschaft. Surely it is a two-way street, i.e. surely organisations are ideologically bound rather than legally bound to promote the profit premise at all costs. Well, I think they're probably ideologically uh, uh, and to some extent uh, legally or what they sometimes call the kind of fiduciary responsibilities. The idea of the social contract, however, is really, really important in this German sense, but also going back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his book of this name, which was highly influential on the formation of, uh, of democracy. And bearing in mind that the idea of the social contract is that in order to live well together, we actually have to give up some of our freedoms. We can't just go around doing whatever we want as if just kind of, you know, our actions determined by whatever desire overtakes us at, at any given point. 
and that to, to live and work together, we give up some of our freedoms. Now, at that time, the issue was was largely about political freedom, and the and in many cases, the fear at the time was about too much power being in the hands of governments, uh, not democratic governments, but or being in the hands of rulers and, and monarchies and, and so forth. Now, we've come to a stage today where I think that a new social contract is actually required. But the danger at the moment isn't through, I mean, you know, we've had, a, you know, over the history of kind of politics, you look at the danger of authority from the church, you look at the danger of too much authority from the state, but the situation we're in now is the danger of too much authority from uh, the private sector. And things have moved. So it, it is a question then of, of re-looking at that social contract. Mm. And to what extent should economic freedom, um, you know, the freedom of, of the so-called free market and the freedom of people to, to pursue economic interests, somehow overshadow other issues of uh, how we live together in, in a democratic society? And, and, and in many ways, these are all very open questions that uh, that we need to address. But it does seem that corporations now have more power than ever before. Um, and in some cases, individuals, you know, I was reading uh, an article from a few years ago that was looking at the funding of the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, major funder of that is the US government. The third major funder of that was the British government. Uh, at the time this article was written, at least, the second major funding funder was was uh, Bill Gates or the the, the uh, Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation. Should private interests have that much control over um, issues that are fundamentally public? Mm. My view is no. Mm. Mm. All right, let me ask you a question that Andrew Oliver posed. He was the first person to ask a question, so I think we should give him primacy. Thinking of secular democracy, should not both large companies, especially monopolies, be neutral in many things like religion, sport, sexual preference, recreational preference, in the name of liberty, solidarity, equal opportunity? Should they butt out altogether, Carl? Um, there's, a there's a temptation to agree with that, <laughs> that that's kind of non none of their none of their business. Mm -hmm. um, into, I mean, but at the same time, you'd expect corporations to, you know, they operate within a society and you'd expect them then in somehow to uh, to reflect uh, that society as well. I mean, to, to be completely neutral, I guess that was the way. I mean, you know, once upon a time, we envisage business people as the, the man in the grey flannel suit, the entire kind of an interesting, conservative, and somewhat boring character. Now we have these kind of larger-than-life uh, people, uh, you know, who are kind of going out of their way um, to have an uh, opinion on everything. Um, but it does seem to be a bit uh, out of whack if you just get listen, you get more of an opportunity to be listened to just because of the economic resources um, uh, that you control. I'm not big on 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 banning people from saying things. I think that leads us into a whole other issue of, of uh, civil liberty. So I'm not sure that we should necessarily ban people from doing anything. Um, and that would include, you know, managers and CEOs of corporations. But I certainly think we should be aware of that. But when it comes to actually directly influencing political activity, not just through opinion, but through 
through funding or through, you know, Bill Gates deciding what the priorities of the World Health Organization should be. I think we're in a whole other territory there beyond issues of free speech, which are, you know, which are, we need to be a bit more balanced about. Mm-hmm. So Linda Peach says, in the context that governments generally take action and often politically watered down action on social justice issues, when it comes becomes clear that a substantial number of votes may be lost if they don't, when corporations do pick up a baton, as Gillette did, does that effectively increase the spread of messaging around social justice issues? And is that a problem? Even if their involvement is cynical in that it is motivated by profit, if we took that away, who would fill in the gap between government rhetoric and action? I think in some cases it does amplify. You mentioned before, you know, Nike, Callan Kaepernick and, and Black Lives Matter. And that was certainly a great amplification of issues and caused, you know, uh, some significant turnarounds in views from, from the from the NFL, the National Football League um, in, in general. So it can have that effect. And again, you know, so there is an amplification effect. In some cases, however, it can, it, there is also it can create a backlash which which uh, works against the issues, and you can see that in politically polarized views. Um, so, to the second part of the question, as to you know who should do it, it's still the role of all of us as citizens to engage in the political process. And as I said before, the instigation of real political change doesn't come from corporations. I don't even really think it comes from government because mm. governments are there to represent the people's interests, not to not to create what the you know not to dictate what those interests should be. So it's from from citizen engagement in politics and often that can become through through social movements, through political movements, through activism, and through other acts of citizenship, including going to the ballot box, which is how many the main way many people uh, uh, display their, their their democratic role, but it's about re-engaging ourselves as citizens, so that it is actually the people, uh, individually and collectively, um, uh, who do end up having that voice. And I think mm-hmm. the kind of individualism and the you know. Um, that's that's kind of permeated through society and, you know, just kind of looking after oneself. The idea, even with elections, you know, you speak to people now and it's almost as if for many people, elections is, well, which of the political platforms of the party will benefit me personally most and I'll vote for that party? That's not what democracy is about. Democracy is about voting for the for the party that you think will be the best for the common and shared prosperity of the nation and the kind of re- rethinking that kind of democracy i think is central and what all of our roles are in that i mean you know including our participation here in this forum in a very small kind of way mm, mm. so is there a way then for big businesses and ceos to ethically contribute to positive social change I guess there is. I mean, you know, you may have seen a few months ago the company Patagonia, um, mm. uh, often considered woke. It was actually back in September. Um, their CEO, a guy called Yvon Chouinard, announced that his family was going to transfer 98% of the company's stock to a newly created not-for-profit organization, and that was all dedicated to climate change. And it was billed in the press as, you know, as uh, this guy was giving the work company away. 
And in many ways, um, uh, this was very positive. They gave it away, but they didn't give away control. They just had control through a different set of corporate structures. Now, that can be seen as corporations doing a good thing. And, I, you know, we've got no reason to doubt the motives of any of these people. But practically, what this means, or what, they, what the projections were, that it would mean that each year, about $100 million of non-reinvested profits would go into, you know, um, climate-related causes. Great, $100 million. Meanwhile, if you look at what's happened just this last week or so at, at COP27, um, there was a report released there that suggested that if the world wants to meet the Paris Agreement targets, we need an increased funding globally for climate change of $1 trillion per annum. That's the scale of the problem and the scale of investment required. So while it might be great that Patagonia have given the company away, the $100 million that it generates is relatively insignificant to the size of, of the problem. So even when you get a company that does seem to be acting out of goodwill, it's nowhere near what's needed to address the significance of the of a problem that really can only be um, uh, approached from a, from a political standpoint, just as was the case with COVID. Why we haven't, you know, COVID was an example that when we had this world pandemic, private organizations couldn't solve that. The kind of money that was needed to inject into the economy uh, to keep it going, the kind of money that was needed to fund the, the, the rapid development of, of vaccines. Private enterprise was involved in that, but there was almost a return to government during COVID because it was realized there are some problems that are of such magnitude that, that governments are the only, uh, the only institutions that can actually serve to, to solve them. And our big problems are like that. COVID was like that, climate's like that, inequality is like that. So despite the goodwill and ethical good-mindedness of corporations, in this, we've got to accept as much as anything, they are too weak to address the problems and that, that needs to come from somewhere else. That's a really interesting point. And in fact, you write about how little corporations did in COVID. And in fact, mm. even worse than that, how many of them benefited from COVID, whether it yeah. be through furlough schemes or what we saw in Australia with JobKeeper, et cetera. Mm. Um, so really, but really what you're saying is it's about um, restoring faith, public faith in the role of government. Is that yeah. what you're saying? A capacity for government, I suppose, to once again take those that mantle of leadership and be able to be at the table as a more powerful player than the than the combined interests of a corporate class. Yeah, I mean, it really needs a, a renewed faith in democracy, a renewed approach to democracy. You know, if you want to use the term, a new New Deal. I mean, that was another example of a time where in the US, US history where government kind of um, reasserted itself uh, to create massive program programs for um uh, for social well-being again in a time of crisis again in a time of crisis now that's been gradually dismantled by the forces of neoliberalism mm -hmm. since then um but yes yeah, so we need a new political imagination from a new generation any younger people watching today sorry to load you up with that responsibility but it's also a great opportunity 
uh, to make a difference uh, to make a difference for the future. And I mean, and our role as a university is central in that too, in terms of how we educate young people to understand those those broader responsibilities. And that's you know across all disciplines uh, that that we teach in. We have that responsibility to to create uh, you know a new future. Democracy is never something you achieve, right? Because it, it, it's it's idealistic. Democracy is always like a horizon, and like the horizon, you walk towards it, but you never get there. But I think we've I think we've been walking backwards a bit recently, um, and it's time to go back into the forward gear. So we're beginning to get towards the end of time, but I want to ask a few more audience questions because it's very nice that people have been engaged in asking questions. Um, Marco Angelini talks about British political writer Will Hutton, who helped coin the expression stakeholder capitalism as a challenge to how business is organised and oriented legally and financially to disregard socially useful outcomes, indeed the notion of a common good itself. The disjunction between democratic control and corporate profits has now grown further than our worst fears. In reordering corporate capitalism for the better, what models are there beyond radical root and branch change? Oh, um, I don't know about what, I mean, uh, let's not discount radical root and branch <laughs> change, by the way. That's still, that's uh, hopefully there's some viability in that, but, but it will take time. And the difficulty is that corporations have a lot of political clout. I mean, often people look to, um, uh, to countries that retain kind of elements of uh, of the welfare state that have been eroded, and you see government. New Zealand is a potential example there. Certainly, Scandinavian and Nordic countries, although interesting things happening in Sweden at the moment. Um, uh, so, I think there are some potential potential models there of uh, of nations that that haven't completely been subsumed, and it's certainly different in different places. You know. Um, you know, if you go to the US, I was in New York recently and, and you know, a huge, vibrant place, you know, massive wealth all over the place. But also you walk down the street, there's homeless people, there's people who clearly have mental illness, drug problems, getting arrested. And, you know, that kind of inequality that exists completely uh, side by side. So this is, you know, this is in, in, even in the most wealthy countries, you, you kind of have have these problems um, as well. So I think there are different models in different places uh, to look for. And, you know, those are, are a few examples uh, that I gave there. But I think it's not just about looking to, to it's about looking for new models and looking for new imagination and, and new um, uh, forms of uh, political commitment as well. Now, I don't have the answer to that. I don't have some blueprint for the future. <laughs> and if I did, or pretended to, I'd be just as stupid as any other crazy dictator who think they can hold the whole world in their hand and control everything. I think it's something we have to do together out of out of a, a, a set of values that, that is more communal and, and, and more democratic and sees dem democracy not just as a political system, um, but actually as a way of life and a way of interacting with one another that is about caring about people, but also about, about uh, tolerance and respect and mutual obligation. And I think one of the things about COVID is I think it did remind people that that can be possible. And it's a bit yeah. about 
we're all a bit in PTSD after COVID, but we should remember that, remember the role the, the state played, but also actually remember that that sense of collective and of collective responsibility for other people's health. Absolutely. I think there's so many lessons out of COVID from politics, but it seems that in practice now, we're all just trying to forget everything yeah. about COVID. The health, terrible health, um, uh, the, you know, the, the effects of the pandemic with people dying and so forth. But the political lessons we seem to be forgetting. And I think there's many, many, as you say, political lessons uh, from COVID that we could uh, that we could certainly learn from. Mm. So last question from the audience, and then we'll allow you a bit of a wrap up. Um, and it's a great one from David Raw. He's asking, where does news corporation fit into a woke capitalism world? <laughs> um, very interesting point. I mean, clearly, if you if you read their uh, their newspapers, no one's describing them of being woke. And if anything, uh, you know, you look at, at at media outlets like Fox News uh, at one extreme, but but you know, um, Sky News here, these are really the the most uh, vicious um, reactionary anti-woke people who think everything about wokeness is is terrible so on one hand that is that is very much promoted there um uh, and also about control of but uh, but also then about the political control of of governments so this is actually kind of there's a different kind of school of thought there so i would have thought these things in a way are quite uh in conflict with one another um, even though ostensibly they're both pursuing, you know, they both kind of rely on on uh, a kind of corporate-based economy and have a belief in a corporate-based economy, but really from a de very different perspective. A news corp, if anything, is kind of old school. It's more focused on on government, but about about controlling the government in in uh, in particular ways. So yeah, there's some interesting contradictions there that they're uh, teasing out. Yeah, totally. All right, so Carl, in the final minutes of this webinar, uh, what I suppose, I mean, and you've you've actually said a lot of it in your book, and so really just a recapping of I suppose the um, vital role that a, a newly invigorated democracy can play, and what do you think is the next thing that needs to happen? I'm not sure I know what the next thing needs to happen um, uh, specifically. I mean, in, in many ways, the, the purpose of my book was to uh, kind of tease out what woke capitalism is, what it means, what it's doing, how it works, um, uh, and not necessarily provide solutions to that. I mean, you know, the last chapter of the book kind of sums it up that, that the best I can do, you know, is to help people become woke to woke capitalism. <laughs> but it's as a result of that awareness, as and, and not necessarily to say, I, I didn't read, write the book trying to convince everyone that they should believe what I believe. It's more about creating a debate about what seems to be such an important, an important thing. Um, so I think the next, the, the next thing that needs to happen is political the next thing that needs to happen is for all of us to continue to engage in in the political process and let the democratic process unfold and democracy will always unfold to an unknown future right we can't know what democracy is going to do in the future if we knew the future now it it would cease to be the future 
Um, but it, it, it's to engage in that process and not to give up on, on the promise of democracy. That's wonderful, Carl. Thank you so much. That was really great. And for those of you who are interested, I feel like I'm now an advertisement. Um, Woke Capitalism, it was a really great read. I enjoyed it immensely. Easy read, read it in a weekend, but really got me thinking about all of the subjects, all of what you heard us talking about today. And that was Professor Carl Rhodes in conversation with Honourable Professor Verity Firth, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney. This event was hosted by the UTS Sydney Business School and the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion, and we'd like to thank UTS for allowing us to bring this to you at 3CR. Professor Carl Rhodes' book is called Work Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy, which I noted that the UTS had specifically chosen not to promote its sale using Amazon, which is very appropriate given the subject matter. We'll now go to a music break, and when we come back, we'll be hearing about an organizational structure providing social benefit in Spain, specifically worker cooperatives. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Here's Stranger by Spinifex. that was Stranger by Spinifex. We're going to head straight into our next segment now, looking at an organisational structure from Spain that places workers at the heart of outcomes and operations. 
I'm going to hand over to Claudia now, who spoke to Ana Aguera last year. This summer, tune into 3CR's Disability Day broadcast, Rest is Survival. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities. Conversations about rest as a necessity for survival, the ways disabled people are habitually denied both rest and income, reflections on disabled rest and joy, disabled Indigenous anti-capitalist futures, and much more. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022, or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app. Hello and welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Claudia here with you, and thanks again if you've just tuned in for joining us. In a world dominated by top-down centralised regimes and shareholder capitalist models, many people are looking for alternatives that provide a different way of doing things. The cooperative form of organisation based on values of fairness and equality where workers take a greater role in ownership and decision making is one such model. We are very fortunate and excited to have as our guest this morning Ana Aguere, co-founder and worker owner at Tazabayez, a cooperative organisation in the Basque country of Spain's north. Tazabayez is a cooperative organisation working closely with the very famous worker-owned cooperative group Modragan. Anna is a graduate of the Modragan Team Academy and plays an active part in the Platform Cooperative Coalition, a movement that asks the crucial question, what kind of new economy do we want to create? And aims to optimise the digital economy for all people rather than just a wealthy few. Anna is also the International Cooperative Alliance Youth Committee representative as of April this year. She's visiting Australia to be a guest speaker at the Building the Social Economy Cooperatively event hosted by RMIT Forward, taking place this afternoon in Carlton. She joins me now to share the main themes for this event and also tell us more about her experience working in the cooperative system. Welcome, Anna. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for sharing your time. I, I know you've got such a busy schedule while you're here and also a little bit jet lagged. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm doing very good with the times, but yeah, it's early. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what influenced you to become involved in cooperative organising? Um, so I am um, originally from the Basque Country, as you said, and it's a um, area of the world that it's actually very cooperative in a, in itself, right? So a lot of the companies and the big industries are cooperative. So for us, it's fairly natural that some of um, some part of the of the of the population or the young population of any background would end up working or at least related to a cooperative model. Uh, we're talking about Mondragon Group, for instance, has eighty five thousand workers, but in a territory of 2.1 million, that it's the Basque Country, we have more than 1,200 co-ops. And mostly, most of them are worker-owned. So it would have been natural that I would have ended up in uh, something like that. But I was even more involved because I uh, was the first generation of uh, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation, cooperative entrepreneurship program by Mondragon University. And so during my whole four years of uh, college or university, I was actually creating already 
uh, work our own co-op alongside uh, some of my classmates. And when we graduated, well, naturally, we, we ended up uh, spinning off as a co-op. So it was all by chance because I was going to be an engineer and ended up in this program, but uh, it worked. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I'll definitely be asking you about the cooperative that you're involved in in a moment. But for our listeners this morning, can you just go over what the key features of a cooperative are and how they're different to a corporate organisational model um, in their ownership structure and operations? Of course. Um, So when we talk about cooperatives, I normally talk especially about worker-owned co-ops that I think are the main issue in my days here in Australia, that are uh, companies that are owned by the workers. And how is this important? And for me, how this uh, specific model of cooperatives uh, represents like a utopia of cooperatives is because um, the decision makers, the owners, and the people that manage are the ones that suffer the consequences. So sometimes when we talk about managers or when we talk about decision makers or shareholders, uh, they take decisions that aren't going to implicate their own selves. But in worker-owned co-ops, the people that are taking the decisions, the work, the people in the director positions or the people that are the shareholders, whatever decision they take, it, it uh, directly influences the way they work, right? So these people um, are participating actively in decision-making and management of the company. And what that does implies exactly that they need to be very educated of what is going on in the company. So never again would you hear, oh, I didn't know that or I don't know what's going on financially in my company, despite what is your role, because at the end of the day, when you need to participate, you need to be educated. So I think they are very transparent, very democratic, uh, a lot uh, of empowering of workers, but also shared uh, instruments uh, that share wealth, that are just and that dignify work. Can you give us some examples of how it works in practice? Yeah. Um, so, for example, when you need to sometimes companies, for example, regular companies, when they need to approve the year, uh, the year's planned, it's uh, just approved by the shareholders, right? So there are people that normally don't even work in the companies. For the cooperatives, is uh, once a year there's a general assembly, and that means all the workers come together. So you stop. Uh, produce, uh, producing and everything, you stop and everyone comes together. It can be seven people, 30 people, 4,000 people, right? Um, and they need to approve the accountings of, of, the, of the past year, the budget for the next year, the working, uh, the working plan for the year ahead. Uh, they need to approve the management uh, capacity of the management team. Everything is done by the workers. And sometimes we think, oh, cooperatives are not very agile because they need to get together for everything, right? So imagine a 4,000-people company. Uh, we need to buy computers. Let's sit 4,000 workers together and decide whether we need to do computers. No, we still have management teams, but those management teams are made up by workers. So that means that people from all stages and all layers of the hierarchy of the organization are involved in decision-making. And although they are a small group, they advocate for the good of the big group. Well, it sounds absolutely ideal. Um, (laughs) Are there any problems that tend to come up in this type of organization that is common? Of course, like we are like, there is no no such thing as a perfect organization. And that means that a lot of the times that... um, 
you need to be very well educated and people are like, okay, well, I don't have time because I need to do my job or there's people that take participation for granted. It's like democracy, right? Sometimes you look at polls when uh, you're you're going to have elections soon. So when you look at polls, people are like, oh, you know, I this percentage of the population didn't even go to vote. And those are people that take for granted the fact that they can vote and that they can participate in decision making. And same goes for cooperatives. There's no such thing as perfect organization. Thank you. And your own cooperative, Tazabayas, can you tell yes. us about that? Yeah, very impressive pronunciation too. Um, Tazabayas is a, it stands for And Why Not in Basque, our local language. And it's a uh, innovation consultancy and we work a lot in education. So educating people, but um, in the educational level, like universities of a school where we teach entrepreneurship and cooperative entrepreneurship, but also educating companies and generating training programs for other institutions, cooperative and non-cooperative. And then we have a more regular consultancy that it's, uh, has major work in communication and uh, visual communication and also cooperative development and participatory dynamics. Wow. Now, that's just one organisation in a whole group of organisations that are part of the Modrigon Cooperative Consortium. Can you tell us more about Modrigon? Mondragon is uh, the biggest cooperative corporation in the world. And uh, just for, for you guys to know, it's at, uh, among the 10th biggest groups in, the, in, the, in Spain, industrial groups in Spain. And it's made up of over 80 co-ops, uh, worker-owned cooperatives, and 85,000 people worldwide. And it's, um, it's a spe- special because it's worker-owned, and its main uh, business is industry. So most of the times when people think about co-ops, and even my own, uh, they think, oh, service companies, right? But Monaragon is very specific because they do industrial work. Some of the cutting-edge industrial uh, peacemaking uh, companies uh, in the world at Mondragon. So I am sure that in any of your home appliances or in any of your cars, uh, there are pieces that have been made by Mondragon. For those of you that may be uh, bicycle or cycler uh, fans, uh, there is a big Mondragon group uh, bicycle company that is Orvea or Via, and they do some of the best bicycles in the world. So you can find anything done by Mondragon. And the beauty is that they have a very good structure of solidarity that they put together resources, funds, they have um, social and health security as well as pension coverage specific for the co-ops. So they make sure that they have a stronger system of solidarity and support than just if they were uh, standing alone co-ops. Yeah, and I'm interested to know, you talked a little bit about the Basque country um, always having a a history of cooperative organisation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the social and or political climate that influenced the growth of cooperatives um, and particularly has helped support Modrigan in its growth? I think that would be really interesting for <laughs> listeners who are you know, keen to know more and, and, and people in all countries, but as in Australia, to, to learn um, from your uh, example and perhaps replicate some of the systems. Yeah, some some people say that sometimes when when people come to Mondragon and we have around 5,000 people coming to visit from all over the world every year, um, more or less. Um, so a lot of people ask, like, oh, you think it's replicable? And there's a lot of people that say, well, I don't think so because it's very enrooted in the culture. Me, myself, I'm a big believer that, yes, it is replicable. So I do think that the Basque country has some 
solidarity features that are intrinsic to the culture, and therefore it's kind of a good melting pot for uh, cooperatives to arise. But we need to remember that, for example, when Mondragon started, uh, we were talking about end of the Civil War, very poor population that had most likely fought in the uh, Republican side, right? So we lost the war in a way. So it was a dictatorship, one of the oldest in Europe, and people were very poor and uneducated. Um, and the, and the normal, their normality of jobs was very big capitalism companies, capitalistic companies that would be also very paternalistic, so very low salaries and then extra services for the workers. Um, for Mondragon, that it's like that miracle, right? That we, there is a book that is called The Miracle of Mondragon. And um, they say that, well, there's, it was started or envisioned by a priest. Um, but the beauty of the story is that he spent, Arifmendi Arrieta, that it's a very bad last name for Anglophones, uh, Arifmendi Arrieta spent 10 years uh, educating the people and starting from very young age um, before he created the first cooperative. And how this is important is because he didn't expect cooperatives to arise just like mushrooms, right, out of uh, an educated population. He needed to educate and uh, prepare the ground for people to be ready to own their work and to people to be ready to participate in decision-making. But that only happens if you are educated and you have the resources to be critical-minded, right? So he spent more than 10 years just educating before starting a co-op. Then he created a whole macrostructure that is later on known as Mondragon Group that was a solidarity uh, net that involved worker-owned co-ops in industrial work, uh, also a bank, a cooperative uh, worker-owned bank, um, a university that was the first cooperative that was created, and then also research and development centers to make sure that uh, innovation was made in-house. So, so yeah. And is, is this part of what's going to be discussed today at the panel discussion, the sort of conditions and environment that are conducive to uh, creating cooperatives? Yes, today we'll be going deeper, I guess, into the how the features, the how was it done, and also what the the part of the social and solidarity economy and the fostering of these features by government supporting programs and and how do we make that uh, possibility uh, real by uh, supporting from the public and private sectors, right? So a little bit be, uh, deeper into how do you create the good scenario for these spaces to be able, or these ecosystems to be able to arise. Well, we'll give out details of the panel discussion uh, in a moment. I just wanted to ask you one last question. You're also the Youth Ambassador with the International Cooperative Alliance. Do you have a message for Australian youth who are wishing to learn more about co cooperatives um, as an alternative to corporate organisation? Yes. Unfortunately, co-ops are not uh, exempt of the lack of youth. I think uh, most of the sectors can share that youth isn't uh, the, the most uh, engaged or the most allowed to be engaged when we talk about representativity, because a lot of youth works, a lot of youth is active. Most of our youth are, are contributing to society, but unfortunately, we don't have, uh, in a lot of cases, the space to be uh, representative of our own voices. So I uh, encourage you to reach out uh, 
uh, to the cooperatives in your in your area in your sectors and uh, participate also at uh, at the global level. We have obviously the regional level in the Asia Pacific, but uh, we are we don't have a lot of Aussie representatives in the International Cooperative Alliance Youth Network, so more than welcome to, to share more and, and, and get involved because uh, I think it's a, it's a model that is very aligned with the values of the new generation, and I am 31, so I am not the younger youth. Um, there's people that coming behind me that are a lot more aligned with those values of solidarity and, and social impact, so I encourage you to learn more about co-ops and get involved in the, in the Australian uh, movement, but also at the worldwide level. Thank you so much for your time this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And that was Ana Aguirre, co-founder and worker owner at Tazabayes, a cooperative organisation working closely with Modrigon in Spain's northern Basque country. And that was Claudia speaking with Ana Aguera about the organisational model of worker-owned cooperatives. Ana was a guest speaker at a panel discussion titled Building the Social Economy, which was hosted by RMIT last year. And that was all that we have time for this morning. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations about social good, democracy and worker cooperatives. Thanks for listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be back next week, same time, with more of our favourite chats. Hope you'll join us then. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.
summer programming on 3CR, and there's so many reasons to stay tuned. Shorts, features, documentaries, new and unusual music, and highlights from 2022. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials.